0: Another quick one. Johnny, I believe you asked for the last two songs. What were you thinking?
1: (laughs) Well, let me answer that. So this is clearly a new generation at the castle, because Louise can testify, we, we oldies know that first one fairly well. So... Uh, it's like a it's like a good beer. It might not taste great the first time, but after years, <laughs> that becomes your great classic beer that you go to. So, and the second one, I chose it, but someone chose the wrong tune, because that's, that's that's not my fault.
0: that's my. That's, you, if you uh,
1: if you YouTube "Tis Finish the Messiah Dies," there's a beautiful tune to it, and. Uh, so I did not That's choose my fault. the tune. That's okay, my fault. I chose the words. Okay. But wait, the
0: onus is on us for that first one. So maybe we can sing it at Christmas because there's a there's a theme there again. Yeah. Uh, to to keep up the spe- sweet speed with the oldies, right? Uh, sorry to insult you there, but your age, Johnny, you're past it now. Mm-hmm. Um, is uh, is there any indication in the Bible of how long Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden before they fell? I.e., a time span between Genesis two and three.
1: Uh, And does it matter? uh, No, there's not, and no, it doesn't really matter. Uh, We do know from chapter 5 that he fathered Seth when he was 130 years old. So um, we don't know exactly what age he was. I I think he was a growing man. Um, I think when God made mountains, he made them to look like they'd been there for thousands of years. And I think when he made Adam, he made him a growing man. What age that was exactly, we don't know.
0: Okay, uh, can you explain how the unclean serpent was in God's perfect creation and why would Eve or Adam have not fulfilled their God-given rules <coughs> before the fall?
1: Uh, so we don't know exactly when Satan fell from heaven. Jesus tells us that he fell from heaven and he saw him fall from heaven. Uh, when that was, we're not exactly sure. Uh, I think it was at some point after day one, um, And when God said that everything he had made was very good, I think he was referring to the created order that he had made in the earth. And I think the serpent comes in from the outside. It's Satan in the form of a serpent. And at some point between days one uh, to six, um, I think there is the fall of Satan. And he doesn't actually corrupt the world until he gets Eve and Adam to eat And actually, it's Adam, not Eve, to eat from the tree of uh, the knowledge of good and evil. So when exactly he fell, we're not sure. Um, What was the second part of the question?
0: Um, Why would Adam and Eve not have fulfilled their God-given rules before the fall?
1: I'm not sure what that's asking. Is that asking about why they didn't get rid of the serpent before before the fall? Mm -hmm. Or... Anybody want to own the question? <laughs> yeah, I'm not quite sure what that If you Come and ask me afterwards. Yeah, sir, Sorry? Can
0: you answer
1: that part now? You know why, you know, why did they not kill the serpent? Before? Uh, yeah, I I don't know why. Um, they didn't. Uh, they engaged with the serpent instead of actually removing him from the garden, uh, which is what they should have done. Uh, one question that we can maybe answer now is what, why didn't? Or how would they have known the serpent was unclean if that's not said until Leviticus? Um, And that's true. You don't want to read the Bible right to left in that regard. But the moment the serpent opens its mouth, the first question is a challenge to God. And at that point, they should have known this is a crafty creature. The narrator tells us he's crafty and they're ignorant of that if you like but as soon as he starts talking there's the abnormality of a talking serpent but also you have the question is challenging god's authority so at that point they should have realized what's going on and killed the serpent and primarily that was the role of adam and so he failed at that point
0: okay uh technical question here did the new covenant in some preliminary respect begin in post-exilic israel Example: See the verses and chapters surrounding Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-one. I'll read that a verse just for people's. It uh, talks about the new covenant. Jeremiah thirty-one says, "Behold, the days are coming," declares the Lord, "when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah." Uh, it talks goes on to say, "Not like the covenant I made with their fathers."
1: Um, the, so, uh, if I can take a step back, the Baptistic view is that. You have the covenants with Adam, and then the covenant of grace with Noah, Abraham, Israel, David, and then you have this new covenant, which changes the actual internal structure and nature of the covenants up until that point, and that's hence the name "new," the new covenant. The um, reformed paedobaptist perspective is that there is only one covenant of grace from Genesis 3.15 on, and it just organically develops. And when Jeremiah 31 speaks about the new covenant, it's speaking about a, a new administration of this covenant of grace, which will be the final administration of the covenant of grace. Uh, I don't think the new covenant only arises in the post exilic period you have jeremiah uh, Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 i will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your children after you which is a promise from moses to israel and if the children are just spiritual children not physical children as baptists argue then by definition they already have their hearts circumcised so i will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your children after you and if the your children are spiritual children By definition, they have their hearts circumcised. So it becomes a tautology, whereas it has to be the physical descendants that uh, Moses is speaking about. So I think there are hints of the new covenant well before the exile. And the reason I don't think the new covenant changes is because when you read the promises of the new covenant in Jeremiah 32 and 33, 32, 37 and 38, I think it is, or 27 and 28, it says, I will do good to you and to your children after you. Ezekiel 37 says the same. It will be to you and to your children after you. Isaiah 65, 23, to you and to your children after you. And so the structure of a promise to the people in the covenant and to their children is inherent in the new covenant. And then in Acts 2, 38, 39, uh, this promise is for you. Peter speaking to Jewish men, it's promises for you and your children, and those whom the Lord God will call from afar off. And so if there is a new structure to the new covenant at the point of inauguration at Pentecost, why does Peter speak like an old covenant uh, man saying to you and to your children? It, It makes no sense. I think there's more continuity there than discontinuity.
0: Uh, what was the first sin? Was it eating the fruit by Eve, or was it you know, Adam listening to Eve, Eve craving knowledge, or Adam <clears throat> eating the fruit?
1: Uh, I think it's Adam eating the fruit, and that was the command. The day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the actual sin was the transgression of the law not to eat. And interestingly, in the Hebrew um, there's this emphasis on eating and the Masoretes who did the accent markers on the Hebrew actually delayed an accent mark in order to get the climax to be and Adam ate and then he ate. Um, And it's only when he eats in verse 6 and he ate, which is the climax, does verse 7 then say, then the eyes of both were opened. So when Eve eats, her eyes aren't opened. Uh, it's only when he eats that both of their eyes are opened. So I think the fall occurs at the moment when Adam uh, eats. Yeah, She sinned when she ate, but the repercussions for both of them only kicked in when the covenant head ate from the fruit.
0: Okay. Uh, do you think this was always God's plan A for Adam and Eve to eat the fruit? Uh, God could have come down uh, to not quite sure step in uh, he must have been aware at the time what was going on and Jesus it, always plan A to save thoughts on this?
1: yeah I think it was always God's plan for Adam and Eve to fall now that becomes a bit of a mystery for us is he the author of sin uh, the Bible says no He is not the author of sin and yet he does mysteriously plan that sin would be part of his sovereign plan for the whole world uh, you've got to go to passages like Ephesians 1 and Revelation the Ephesians 1 it has always been God's plan to unite all things under Christ well Christ has to be revealed and he can only be revealed if there's first sin and so it has been God's plan from the very beginning that the fall would occur um, and we see that with it by the fact that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is put in the middle of the garden easy to find it's not off among the other trees hiding God puts it right in the middle because it's going to be a test for Adam and Eve. Um, So if you'd looked over God's shoulder, anthropomorphically speaking, before the foundations of the world, you would not have seen, and he was drawing, planning out the history of the world, you would not have seen (coughs) Adam in the garden, but you would have seen Christ on the cross. Um, That has been his plan all along. It's a mystery to us, but if Adam had never fallen... Would you have ever known God as a God of grace and mercy and love? No, you would only have known God as a God of justice and righteousness, giving Adam what he rightly deserved, and that was eternal life through his perfect obedience. So it is through the fall that we get to see aspects of God's character that we would never have seen had Adam not fallen. Um, And at some point in that, we just need to bow before God and say, you are God, your judgments are perfect, and who are we to question what you should choose to do in this world? So Romans 9 to 11 is very helpful there. Uh, Oh, the the riches and the wisdom and the depth of his judgments. And it ends by giving all glory to God.
0: If we believe in a six-day creation, what about fossils and dinosaurs where do they fit in
1: um i think dinosaurs were created on the fifth day of uh, creation when the animals were made and the sixth day sorry fifth and sixth some dinosaurs were birds um and i think they would have gone into the ark with noah And the others that didn't go into the ark, I think, would have died in the flood. And I think the flood is when you have most of the fossilization of animals in the Earth's crust occurring. Uh, You get a fossil when there's a sudden um, burial in mud. That's that's how you get a fossil. A fossil that just dies, a fish that dies, dies, floats to the surface, gets washed up and just rots. But a fish that's caught in in a flood with... Uh, the um, tectonic plates moving and mud, etc., can be frozen into position in rock uh, through a flood, so I think that 's where we get the fossils from um, yeah,
0: okay. Uh, how should we translate the last clause of genesis three uh, sixteen
1: which reads, "Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you." I think that is not a positive thing but a negative thing. I think it 's speaking of a of a desire that the woman has for her husband in a, in a competitive way, that they will both vie for leadership and in the end the husband will win out because he's bigger and stronger. And sadly, that's what we see in domestic abuse cases in our world. It is generally the men who win out. And I think that God is saying that the consequences of this fall is going to be uh, e- uh, not enmity, sorry, but just aggravation between husband and wife where she will desire to dominate him, but in the end he will he will dominate her. How does That's,
0: that fit with the headship idea?
1: I think it's an of headship. Uh, I think the headship pre-fall is a good headship. It's to be loving, protective, caring, and I think this headship becomes one of uh, competitiveness by both of them. Trying to vie for leadership in the in the marriage. Um, so I don't think it's a good thing. I think it's part of the curse. Okay.
0: okay we've had that question. Uh, well, one
1: translation on that is that uh, your desire shall be contrary to that of your husband. And that, again, that's the idea that you're not going to see eye to eye, and there's going to be this tension uh, in the marriage. Yeah. You know. Could you give more,
0: or some practical examples of what it looks like to keep the Sabbath Lord Lord's Day and contrast it with what it looks like when someone doesn't keep it? How do we have the right balance between being biblical but not being legalistic?
1: I think there are three general principles for the Christian Sabbath that we have in the Bible. The first is that it is holy, set apart to God for worship second is that it's for rest. And the third, that it's for doing good. Jesus said that to the Pharisees. Is it evil to do good on the Sabbath, to save someone's life? Um, And uh, the people that Jesus had the harshest words to were Pharisees about their tightness about the Sabbath. And I think we should take that to mind. And so we should receive the Sabbath not from Moses and all the Jewishness of it. We should receive the Sabbath from Christ. And it's those three things. Uh, worship, set apart for worship, rest, and doing good. Um, I think if you work with those three principles, that your day should be different. It should be bookended, morning and evening, with worship. Um, that's one way to make sure it's set apart. It's a different day. Um, rest. Rest. Uh, I think you should try to avoid doing your normal routine. Of course, there are necessary works like farming, nursing, caring for people that require you to work. When I was a physio, I I had to work on Sundays. I didn't think I was breaking the Sabbath in any way. Um, But you you can choose to also mow your lawn, do your homework, uh, do that extra bit of emailing on the Sabbath. From work but then i think you're carrying your working week over into your sunday and why would you do that when god's commanded you to have a holiday you know it's like taking emails on your holiday to mallorca i mean would you why would you do that and so actually protecting the day from your normal routine i think is actually to your benefit i try to avoid the rules beyond that you know what you can and cannot do um if, you're, if you've got no milk in the fridge, I mean, and you're having guests, go down to the garage and buy some milk for the guests coming around for Sunday lunch. I mean, let's be real here. Or go milk a cow. <laughs> 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 Tell your dad to go out to the farm. Milk cow. It's a work of necessity.
0: I, mean, I suppose it so it's not just about the one day then it's
1: about how you it's about how you use your, you other, use six your other six days and and so Jackie and I ben it's a different day Ben wakes up he knows he doesn't get his uh, rescue bots on Netflix on a sunday morning it's he plays with his toys we have our big breakfast with pancakes fry we normally have people for lunch, so we get the wine out he gets his he gets his Ben wine, which is Ribena equivalent Um, and uh, he gets to play with his friends after, they go out, run around, kick football, no issues with any of that and then we go to evening worship, he doesn't come at the minute because he's up so early on a Monday morning but as he gets older we'll bring him and Jackie will come to evening worship Um, and that's how we spend our day and he just knows it's a different day but we'd want it to be the best day of the week for him um, and Sunday afternoon, we'll watch uh, Pharaoh, Prince, uh, Moses, Prince of Egypt, uh, something that's a bit more focused on the Lord's Day. Uh, but again, we're not, we're not legalistic about it. If we went to someone else's house recently and they said, are you happy for Ben to watch TV this afternoon? We're like, yeah, that's fine. We're not, yeah, we're just not going to have rules that I think go beyond scripture. Those three general principles, I think, are a good one to work with.
0: Okay, uh, First Kings three nine suggests that the ability to discern between good and evil is a characteristic of mature kingship. That might suggest Adam had access to the tree of life uh, from the beginning, with the tree of knowledge and the evil being the probationary tree. Uh, his eventual eating of it, elevating him to consummate maturity, you obviously took a different line. What makes you take your view and not this above position?
1: Yeah, it's not so much I took a different line, but I just focused in on the creator-creature distinction, which I think the tree makes. I think I agree with that, actually, interpretation. Solomon, when he gets elected as king, asks for wisdom uh, to discern between good and evil. And um, that phrase, good and evil, is there with, with Solomon. So I think that what you have there is Solomon asking for maturity and wisdom in a way that Adam didn't. And I think the tree was a test for Adam to grow into maturity of discerning between good and evil. The good was to not eat from the tree. The evil would have been to eat from it. And he was to grow into godliness by not eating and showing that he was discerning good and evil. He failed. Solomon comes as a new Adam and uh, actually asks for that kind of wisdom in the way he is ruling the world as king. Um, so I actually agree with that. It's just that when I was doing the talks, I just didn't emphasize that aspect of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was a probationary test for Adam to grow into a godly maturity, discerning good and evil, and Solomon asks for that. And what was commanded of Adam was gifted to Solomon in the covenant of grace. Okay.
0: Uh, thank you for your tips on marriage. Uh, You're welcome. <laughs> God brought slash made Eve for Adam. Do you think God specifically makes wives slash husbands for each other? Uh, to su- the, uh, I can't quite read that, but do you believe the, the, the nuts and bolts of the question is basically, is there the one that God has made for you?
1: <laughs> uh, was it a girl's name on there? That a guy's, uh, is that what it is? Uh, Um, there's God's revealed will and God's decreed will and his decreed will is secret from us that's known only to him so did God ordain that I would marry Jackie Brown from Sydney Australia yes and I did marry Jackie Brown did I know at the time she was the one no Uh, God hadn't revealed that to me I had to go by wisdom and um, charm yeah (laughs) That 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 came naturally, uh, um, and uh, I had to go by other factors. So if you if so, God gives us a couple of boundaries or, or principles. Um, they need to be a Christian. They need to be of the opposite sex. Um, they can't be your sister or your brother. Probably not your cousin. Uh, and other than that, if you meet someone, are they are they a Christian? Are they godly? Do they love the Lord? Do they like you? Do you like them? Well, ask her out, you know? And uh, and then you get on with it. And how do you know that she's the one after you've made your wedding vows and you wake up the next day? And honestly, she is the one, or he is the one. If you've committed, you've said your vows, you've consummated your marriage, then they are the one, and, and you get on with it. And um, until then, do you ever fully know that they're the one? No, I was anxious and nervous before my wedding so was Jackie and I reckon most people if they're honest are anxious and nervous before their wedding. They love the person they want to get married but they're like Ooh, this is a big deal and you don't know until you actually go ahead and do it um, but the Lord is there with you guiding you through all those big decisions helping you um, the other thing is family, friends are a good help in that respect when they, when you introduce your uh, part uh, boyfriend girlfriend to them, they they can be a good um, help in assessing whether this is going to be a compatible relationship or not. Um, but beyond that, the Lord doesn't give us any divine revelation on that.
0: Okay, well then maybe some practical wisdom uh, question. How does one meet a significant other at the castle? <laughs> and any
1: examples? Yeah. <laughs> I can't speak for myself because I went to Australia to find my bride, to find my Sheila. Um, but speaking for others, I think it was about 11 o'clock on a Saturday night, it was down at the lake, it was really the time that people met.
0: Oh, I, just, I just got chatting to Claire and then we started corresponding and I just asked to meet up and that was it? Yeah. There, there, have be- up a few times. There, there have been a
1: few marriages that have come out of the castle, yeah. Uh, sorry, it, just it, it help uh, having more
0: men here. Actually, if that was well, yes, know, that's that's if true. A woman has asked that question, you will be struggling maybe because yeah. you know, for some reason there's more godly girls here than godly guys. Yep. which is
1: a shame. Yeah, um, I, I, I'm sure that wasn't just a joke. That question, like, how do you meet a Christian guy? It's, I think it's eighty twenty here, girls to guys, um, and. So, let me speak to the guys first. How do you meet a Christian girl? Well, you come to the castle, 80 to 20. Okay? If you're a girl, now you've got other issues, right? 80, 20, 20, only 20% turned up. Um, Now, if you're you're a guy, I think guys these days marry later and uh, should really be thinking of marrying earlier. And I think, guys, we need to stop thinking that there is this perfect girl out there um, I got her, she's in, She's from Sydney, so you need to just get on with it. So, um, uh, but there is no perfect girl, and there's no perfect guy, and I think the world tells us they've got to look a certain way, be a certain shape, have a certain kind of personality, uh, have a certain kind of career path, job, or whatever, and we are so duped by the way the world has made us think that we blokes have become more hesitant in actually initiating with girls, committing and then following through with marriage. And so I can only encourage the guys to ask the Lord to help you have godly standards for what you should be looking for. Uh, Charm is deceitful, uh, beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Proverbs 31. Find the godliest girl you can find and marry her. For the girls, I would say uh, you want to be as godly as you can be, so that when a guy does meet you, he is attracted not to your beauty uh, or to your looks or your charm, but actually to your godliness and your spiritual vitality. Um, and uh, so that's a practical thing on that front. At the same time, Ruth put herself in front of Boaz. Okay, I'm not telling you to go and sneak into the bedroom of the guys. Okay? Let's just get that one right. But there are ways in which you can get yourself in front of guys coming on a weekend like this. Young adults, things in your church, um, things like that. I mean, be practical. If, if you're not putting yourself in the way of guys, then that's not going to happen. All I would say is, um, you also need to make sure it's not like a Bridget Jones attempt, you know, where she's just, if I remember the movie right, she's just doing it too much. So a guy likes to see a, a girl who's got a bit of poise and isn't trying too hard, and yet at the same time she's, she's there for him to spot. I know those things aren't maybe going to solve all your issues or be the magic bullet, but I think you need to be practical as well. I think it's great that uh, folk come on weekends like this, and we joke about it being a matchmaking weekend, but actually it's a great place to meet someone.
0: Uh, we'll stay stay on the, those sort of themes uh, with the next few questions. What what does well this is more what does a wife uh, being a helper to her husband look like practically today, uh, especially when couples have uh, equally demanding careers? Uh, what about this biblical role uh, that you've talked about, and how does that differ from the normal support each other? How does that work?
1: Yeah, again, I think we are so um, influenced by our world that we, we have taken on the standards, the perspectives of what a man and a woman's roles are. Um, so having taught over the weekend, you're probably not surprised that Jackie and I have traditional views which we think are biblical. We hope we've chucked out the things that are just mere tradition. But I think that a man's role is to lead the home Provide for his wife, which means he needs to be the main breadwinner. And if you marry and the Lord blesses you with children, then the woman's main role is to love her husband and to raise her children. And these are commands given in Scripture, Titus 2. Paul says, let older women teach younger women how to love their husbands and their children. And we, the world hears that and thinks oppression um, Slavery, misogyny, and it's not at all. Uh, Cranmer has the beautiful phrase in the Book of Common Prayer, whose service is perfect freedom. God's service is perfect freedom. And if that is a command in Scripture for older women to teach younger women to love their husbands and their children, to be homemakers, then that is perfect freedom in a fallen world. And so if you're a, a woman and you get married, Your primary calling is to support your husband in his calling and job, career. And if the Lord blesses you with children, to look after the children at home. And the Lord has made the woman's body to be the body that carries the child, that breastfeeds the child when the child is born. And that is a woman's primary calling. And I think marriages that try to have two careers going on, when there are children especially on the scene, uh, end up heading for some kind of breakdown emotionally, uh, relationally, because it's just not the way God has made us to operate. Um, so I think that um, the roles of men and women should be carefully thought through as you enter into marriage. And does that mean when you first get married the woman must give up her job? No. Jackie worked for four and a half years. Uh, f- sorry, six years when we first got married. Um, uh, sorry, four years, uh, and then we had Ben, and she f- was full-time with Ben, and then she came. we were pregnant with Layla. She was waiting for Layla, and very sadly, she never came. Uh, and then she's just recently started going back to work. Ben's at school. The Lord hasn't given us more children, though we would love more children. And um, she's now started doing part-time, but it's only part-time because if she went full-time, our life would just be a total mess the the amount of admin and home things that need to be done in order to run a home is incredible especially when you have a kid and um jaggy loves her homemaking, loves raising ben loves her few days at the nursery working but other than that she's got no desire to head off and start her own career and we just think that our lives would just start spinning out of control if uh, we were both trying to head on these different paths. So, no surprise to you from what I taught at the weekend. that uh, I think that the primary calling is for the man to provide for the home and for the woman to support him in that. Each couple will work out for themselves on a really practical level what that looks like. Who cooks? Who does the dishes? Who does the mowing? Who does the car MOT? Like every marriage, you'll work that out, okay? Um, So I don't want to give rules on things like that. But it's broad principles that I think can help.
0: Sarah actually does the mowing in our house. We share share the cooking and uh, I do the car MOTs. Uh.
1: (laughs) But but if if a thief comes into your house, who's supposed to get up? I listen to wedding vows today, where the woman is vowing to protect the man. You know these egalitarian wedding vows, and I, I say to Jackie often, if a thief comes in tonight, it's your turn to get up. <laughs> okay? Let's just be clear about that.
0: If we obviously the emphasis there on marriage uh, over the weekend. Uh, if a woman is strengthened by a couple of these questions, I'll read together. If a woman is strengthened by her husband, how is a single woman to reach her full potential? And then, similarly, since marriage is primarily supposed to reflect Christ sacrificing himself for the church, how can single people reflect that?
1: Um, so, this, the first question um, please don't hear me say, because a wife is the helper to her husband. And she's in a position of strength. If you're not a wife, not married, therefore you're not in a position of strength. I'm speaking in the context of marriage there. If you're a single woman, you have strength to go and serve the Lord in whatever calling he gives you, in a career or in ministry, uh, in a church or on the mission field. And the Lord is your strength and he will give you the strength to do that. And you don't lack strength because you're unmarried. Okay, So please don't hear the teaching the other day as suggesting a single person, a girl, lacks strength. Um, I think you have the freedom, if you're single, to go and do things for the Lord, to pursue a career, and you ought to do all of those things. The question is, what if you meet someone? And what if you get married? Well, I think then your primary role is to love your husband, and if you're given children, to love your children and to raise them. Uh, so you, we've got to distinguish between those two things and so I would just encourage the single ladies here you're single so you have a lot of time to go and do things to travel to serve the Lord to go and visit missionaries to be a missionary to seek a career and to put your time and, and energy into that because that is what the Lord has given you at this time in your life to do And and don't think that you don't have a significant role to play in that regard. I think uh, single women in churches are a magnificent uh, contribution to church life uh, in any congregation. We, we have single girls who help us out on numerous occasions with looking after Ben, if Jackie and I need to be at a conference or something like that. And they serve us in a, in a wonderful way And they gladly do it, and they want to do it, and it's a magnificent support to us in our church. Um, So I hope that's helpful.
0: Uh, In light of the command to be fruitful and multiply, is it wrong for a married couple to plan how many children they want to have, or should they just keep having children as long as possible?
1: I think, again, we are, we're so influenced by the world here, and the world really does say to us, children are a nightmare, and they are a nightmare. <laughs> but no, they're sometimes. Um, that we do. We hear the world tell us children are a nightmare. They're, a, they're an inconvenience. They get in your way. They, they hinder your career. They do all these things. They restrict you. And I think it's just part of the selfishness of a worldly mindset. Children, the Bible says, are a blessing from the Lord. And um, I think, so as a broad perspective, we need to get in line with the Bible's perspective that God is into crowds. Jesus was into crowds. And God is into families. And you read the Old Testament, and there are big families And I think as Christians, we need to adopt a more biblical perspective on that. That said, uh, each family, again, case by case, needs to work out what they can cope with. Some mothers will cope with two children, and that's it. They'll say, I cannot do any more, and that's fine. And I don't think a husband should force that beyond that. Or a husband will say, three kids, otherwise my life's about to spin out of control like emotionally materially physically and that's maybe all you can cope with but again if we keep the perspective of big families lots of children are a blessing from the lord then i think we should be looking to have uh, lots of children jackie and i would love as many children as the lord has given us uh, but he's given us two and in his mysterious providence he took little Layla from us at the 11th hour uh, we've just begun an adoption process in America. We'd love more children naturally, but the Lord hasn't given us those. So I'm reticent to you know, say, why aren't you having more children? Well, there's a lot of couples would love more children, and they can't have more children. So don't, when you see a couple in church of one child or two, don't assume that's all they want. Actually, there could be a deep, deep ache there for more children. Um, yeah. Children are a blessing from the Lord, and I, I think as Christians we should embrace the command to multiply and fill the earth. But each couple will work out what's, what's doable for them.
0: Yeah. How could we support those who,
1: are, who do want to have children but are unable to have any? Um, be very careful with insensitive questions. Uh, Jackie and I have had some incredible questions. Do you not want to have more children? Hmm. Yes, we would love more children. Um, Yeah, just be sensitive with questions for them. Don't uh, not, if you have children, don't not put children in their way. They actually often love to be with children, but also just be aware they'll uh, they'll find that very difficult. Um, Be sensitive if you're pregnant with a child. Be sensitive around those who may have lost children or who are struggling to have children at the same time it's unhealthy to avoid them or for them to avoid you uh, that just becomes very unhealthy so jackie had to go to a baby shower on saturday and uh, <clears throat> she remembers Layla's baby shower the week before she died and uh, that will have been deeply painful for her and no one at that baby shower will know they, they know she's lost a child but they've all forgotten and yet you know for all week this was on her heart i have to go to baby shower and um people can just forget you know other people's grief or other people who were who would be at that baby shower who don't have any children and jackie was saying i just need to be mindful that i actually have two children and there are people coming to this baby shower who would love children who have no children um So just a general perspective of sympathy, outlook, sensitivity. Um, I think as people, as Christians, we can just be very selfish and self-focused on ourselves and ask the Lord to always be helping us think of others uh, I think is really the best thing. When Jackie has a woman who comes up to her after a baby shower like that and says, I know that would have been difficult for you today and I just want to say I was thinking of you, it just means the absolute world to her, you know. That, that's enough for Jackie, just to have that level of support. Mm.
0: Yeah. Uh, we're running short on time now, uh, but there are, there's still plenty more. But uh, the, a few now focused on what you were addressing last night about uh, same-sex marriage, same-sex attraction. So uh, should you attend a same-sex marriage if you're a Christian? Uh, what if they're your friends? And is that going to damage the friendship?
1: Um, This is a tricky one, and I I know it's painful for some, especially if it's a family member, a brother, sister, an uncle, an aunt or cousin who invites you to their same-sex wedding. I think this is where, as Christians, we're going to have to count the cost. I don't think it's right to go to a same-sex wedding. I don't think it's right to go to the reception afterwards and celebrate the same-sex wedding. I think that is where we're going to have to carry the cross and bear the reproach of the world. I'm not for a moment saying that's easy to have that conversation with a family member. Um, but to be at that wedding, you are implicitly and explicitly saying that you are there to celebrate this, and there is nothing there to celebrate. Uh, it is a, um act that is directly defiant against God's good order of creation. And as Christians, we cannot support that in any way. Um, How you go about that, you're going to have to be sensitive, um, but you're going to have to be firm as well. And um, to have an open and an honest conversation with that loved one, with that relative who's invited you. And um, to reassure them of your love for them, your respect for them. And that you hope that your r- relationship can continue with them, friendship after the wedding, would I then call in and see the new married in inverted commas couple afterwards? Yeah, I'd call into their house I'd get to know them I'd invite them to family gatherings they're married they are they're not married, but you know what I mean they're living together, thinking they're married. We are to win these people for Christ, and you're not going to win them for Christ if after that you just completely avoid them. Now, they may avoid you and say, I want nothing to do with you after my wedding, inverted commas. Then that's their choice, and, and you suffer the reproach of Christ. But, you know, have them over to your house for meals. Go to their house for meals. You're not sinning, um, being in their home, eating meals with them. Um, and at that point, you can continue to be a light but I do not think we can attend something like that. Um, yeah.
0: Okay, uh, they're taking it another direction, but on the same theme. How should Christians deal with their own same-sex attraction in a way that honors Christ?
1: So, as you could tell from the talk last night, I don't think same-sex attraction can be affirmed Um If what we mean by that is that a a man fancies a man or is attracted to a man physically, sexually, affectionately in a relationship context or a woman to a woman, uh, let's first discern between what do we mean by same-sex attraction. I can look at my older brother and younger brother and say they're good-looking men, right? Not as good-looking as the middle brother, but, you know, they're good-looking men and but I'm not attracted to my brother in any weird sexual sense. He is a big, my wee brother's a big, strong, uh, strapping lad. He's a handsome guy. So I can affirm that, okay? So we can affirm that, but that's, that's speaking about an objective. He is an attractive man, but subjectively I'm not attracted to him. So we need to distinguish that. But when we are then talking about subjective attraction between sexes, uh, Paul in Romans one will tell us that that is an unnatural attraction. It's it's an unnatural desire. It's not the way God made us as image bearers, male and female. Um, it is part of the brokenness of the world, and I think those desires should be repented of, and that we should ask God to change our hearts if we struggle with those desires, and to give us new desires that are more natural and glorifying to him now does that happen overnight no depends on your family history depends on relationships you may have been in that were same-sex attracted Uh, it will take time to to move away from all of that but i do believe there should be repentance and a desire and a prayer to move away from all of that i think in some christian circles it's getting to the point where people are saying well you can have the desire and it's not sinful so long as you don't act on it But as I heard a good analogy recently, that's like saying that covetousness is okay so long as you don't act on it. So, you know, you covet your mate's car and you say, I'm really covetous of your car. I'm attracted to your car, but I'm not going to sin. I I, I haven't touched it, so I'm, I'm not sinning. But you've still got covetousness in your heart. You're covetous attracted. And so... I think we need to be clear on this and actually start calling out things that are unnatural and ungodly. And I think that includes same-sex attraction or desires. Um, But as I said, I don't think they're going to go away overnight. (coughs) But then a heterosexual man who is married, who struggles with lust and thoughts in his mind about other girls, he needs to repent of his sins and constantly ask God to change his desires. So we all struggle at some level with our sexuality. It um, dep- depends on how we express it, and we need to be asking God to sanctify us and make us holy in each of our cases. Yeah.
0: Okay, a couple of questions similar on, basically, what's your opinion on female teachers, preachers, elders uh, in the church? Uh, mention of first timothy
1: so i think the bible teaches that there are specific roles for men and women in the church and those roles go according to the order of creation uh, adam was created first then eve uh, adam was given the authority not eve and i think that is reflected in the church uh, in the new covenant of grace um, paul is clear in 1 corinthians 11 1 timothy 2 uh, about some of these roles um Does that mean a woman has no role in a church? Of course not. Um, I think they can be serving in different capacities. You have older women teaching younger women uh, to love their husbands, raise their children, and I think that will involve teaching the Bible. You have women teaching children uh, in Sunday school and things like that. Um, You also have um, Apollos, who was taught by... Uh, priscilla and aquila which was a husband and a wife and he was taught by them it seems in an informal capacity in their home they both had input into his life and i've had that in my life i I have a minister in south africa him and his wife different points when i would visit them would give me wisdom i would ask them questions they would give me their thoughts from the bible and uh, i think that's entirely appropriate uh, as well. So it's not that a woman doesn't have a role in a church, it's just that God has ordained specific roles for men and women. Deacons and elders, I believe, are to be for men only. Uh, Paul makes that, I think, clear in 1 Timothy. And teaching in a mixed capacity, I think, is for men. So I don't, I don't think it would be right to have a woman teach at the castle, even though it's not a church. I still think it would be wrong to have that and then similarly at church it should be men teaching
0: okay i'm afraid that's all we've got uh, time for so that's the end of our question and answer